Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. I just want to kind of lay some ground rules. If, if you were not here, I encourage you to watch the last two sermons uh, that we've done on, on the, the backdrop, which, which, which Chris did earlier a couple weeks ago. And, and then last Sunday, we talked about the first commandment. But, but I want to give you this. If you were not here, you, didn't, you, you did not watch, I want to let you know this, that, 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 that when we think about the Ten Commandments, we typically think about, man, these are just some hard rules that God laid down to make our relationship with him hard to make our life hard but but what I want you to know is this that that the law is something that God used to bring order to his relationship with his people furthermore here's what most people miss is that before the law there was God's grace here's what he says before he gives them any of the ten commandments he says I am the Lord your God meaning we're in a relationship together I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. I I brought you out first. Here's what you need to know about Israel, who he brought out God's people. There was nothing that they could do to free themselves from the bondage that they got themselves in. There is nothing you and I can do to save us from what God has already saved us from. If we could have saved ourselves, we would have done that. But God, by his own mercy and by his grace, saves his people, and then he gives them these 10 words, and these 10 words are 10 words, not just rules, but these are 10 words for them to live by. And so when we say live by, I'm not just talking about a woeful existence. God gives them these 10 words so that they can live a fruitful, fulfilling, satisfying life with him and with other people. And so we look at the Ten Commandments. These are not just rules and regulations, but they are a means to a fruitful and beautiful relationship with God and with people. Amen. And so here's what we need to know. Here's how this highlights this. When we look at the first four commands, they deal with our relationship with God. The first four commands are vertical. If we look at the last six commands, they are horizontal. The first four deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship with people, which means this. God doesn't just care how we relate to him. He cares how we relate to our neighbor. How relate to our neighbor. And so God is not just concerned with our life with him, but he is such a purposeful God that he wants us to thrive and flourish in our relationship with other people. Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 6. Let's read together. Exodus 20 verses 1 through 6. Ready? Read. Say it like you believe it. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them, and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity, for the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Louder. Yeah, yeah, there you go. 
Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we just want to honor you today, Lord. Our prayer today is that you would get the glory out of our worship, out of our time together. Um, Lord, I pray that you would, you would bless our hearing today, our understanding. Um, I pray, Lord, that, that these are uh, 10 words that, that we not just know and commit to memory, but that these are 10 words uh, that will be a catalyst of, of how we engage in our relationship with you and with others, Lord. And so, Father, I pray today that you work in our hearts. I pray for the Holy Spirit to convict us where we need convicting, but encourage us also where we need encouragement. And so, Father, today let us just grow in our faith, not just in, in just uh, knowledge, mental knowledge, God, but let us grow in our knowledge of you from our hearts, that we would truly understand who you called us to be in relationship to you. And so, Lord, I pray ultimately that your son Jesus will be exalted, that he will be magnified, that, that we will be drawn to him today. It's in Christ's name we pray, and the people of God said amen. You may be seated in the Lord's presence. From the sermon series, 10 Words to Live By, my, my sermon title is, This is how we do it. This is how we do it. No, I'm not talking about Montel Jordan from the 90s. Uh, but, but this is how we, we do it. Uh, I want to bring your attention to a very popular book that came out some years ago, and it, and it, and it kind of became a quasi-relationship Bible for people who desire to get married or people who were already married. It, it was a book solely focused on improving male-female relationships. Matter of fact, this book was on the New York Times bestseller list for approximately about five years. The, the book that I'm talking about is a book called The Five Love Languages. The Five Love Languages was written by a counselor by the name of Gary Chapman who wrote this book, and, and essentially he wanted people to learn how to love each other better. And, and the book actually equips people with love languages. And, and they're like, they're five of the love languages. And, and maybe you know some of these, or maybe some of you read this book, and you actually know what your love language is. One of them is, is acts, of, acts of service. Uh, another one is, is quality Quality time. Some of you want the people to, to, to put their, turn your phone off. Let's, let's, let's cut the TV off. Let's, let's talk. Let's just be together. My, my personal favorite, uh, amen, somebody, physical touch is my, my personal favorite. I like to give it and receive it. Amen. Praise the Lord. Physical touch is my thing. Uh, uh, some of you like to receive gifts. Some, some of your love languages is receiving, receiving gifts, but, but then some of you like words of affirmation. All, all of these are, are ways in which we like to communicate love, and, and some of them are ways that we give love. In the, in, and here's what, what Cap Chapman says about the book. He says this, that people tend to naturally give love in the way that they prefer to receive love, and better communication between couples can be accomplished when one can demonstrate caring to the other person in the love language, the recipient understands. Well, what I think he's trying to say is that it is possible to have the right person and love them the wrong way. It is possible to, to be with the right person but love them in a way 
that just does not fit for them. And, and so when we look at the, the Ten Commandments and we look at the first command, the first command actually forbids us from worshiping false gods. If that is the first command, the second commandment forbids us from worshiping the true God falsely. And, and, and so the first command addressed who we worship. The second addresses how we worship. And, and, and I guess what we can surmise from that is, is we cannot worship God any way we like. We, we cannot just make up and freestyle how we are going to be in relationship with God because you can have the right God and worship him the wrong way. This is actually what is happening in the second command. This is what God is addressing, especially challenging for God's people at this time because they had just been delivered from 400 years of Egyptian slavery. I need you to think about that. They were in Egypt for 400 years before God brought them out miraculously by his grace. And so they were used to a cultural norm of worship. Where they were from, they were pantheistic, meaning that they worshiped everything. That They were polytheistic and they were pantheistic, meaning that they worshiped multiple gods and God was essentially everything. And so those multiple idols that they worship at the time could take on any kind of form. And so what the people ended up doing was that they would make these idols. They would shape and fashion idols made out of materials. And these physical representations were assigned to each deity by the people. So this represented this God, this represented this God, and this represented this God, meaning that the people constructed by their own hands and earthly materials, idols in the form of statues that represented each deity. And so the, the idols for them would serve as a point of contact between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. You, you could have an encounter with God through an idol. And, and so God's prohibition for them was not only against worshiping other gods, it was against worshiping the wrong, worshiping him the, the wrong way. That The Israelites were, were not to present, represent God in any form of anything in all the creation, like the pagans that they came from. And although God was one living true God, he refused to be represented in the image of any of his creatures. And so he, present, he prohibited the worship of anything that was even said to represent himself. Now, now let me just say this. This does not mean that God is against art. It does not mean that God is against paintings. It, it does not mean that God is against beautiful aesthetics. If you walk into a cathedral or, or you walk into a church and you walk into a home and you see crosses or, or maybe you see some sort of, uh, uh, or on Christmas you see the nativity scene, that does not mean that you now have to take all your Christmas decorations that you save up for the year and throw it in the trash. That does not mean that you go home and take all of the crosses off your wall and from off your nightstand. It doesn't mean that you do any of that. What the second commandment ruled out was not making things, but making things as an object of worship. He's not saying that you can't have things that represent something. It just can't be an object of your worship. 
But what, what he is prohibiting is infusing or, or instilling in any man-made object with, with some sort of spiritual efficacy, meaning that, that, that this thing represents God, and if I pray to it, if I, I bow down to it, if I talk to it, if I, if I rub it, that it'll, it'll give some sort of spiritual effect in my life. That if I, if I have this cross with me and I clutch this cross, that means Jesus is closer to me. That, that if, I, if I look at the picture of, of Jesus on the wall and I talk to it, he's God to me. And I'm talking to God through, through the picture. Me, me, meaning that, 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 that if I have this thing that I look at, I've infused it, meaning that, that if I use it in some way, it has some sort of spiritual effect. You know, I think about this. When I was growing up, one of the shows that I liked to watch, for me, long before American Idol, long before The Voice, there was a show called Showtime at the Apollo. Oh, yeah, that was my jam. It came on late at night around 11 o'clock. And, and, and a few things stood out about the showtime at the Apollo. The, the crowd was absolutely brutal if you were not gifted at what, what you were trying to do on the stage. Uh, the crowd was brutal. Uh, they, they had a, a host typically who was funny. Steve Harvey, before he had 40,000 other jobs, he had the Apollo at one point. He hosted the Apollo. They, they had funny hosts. They had a, 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 a band called Ray Chu and the crew. Uh, if you were really bad, you, you heard this loud siren come out, and then this guy would come from the side of the stage called Sandman Sims, and he would usher the bad performances off the stage as the people booed at the top of their lungs. Uh, then, then you had famous people who would then perform last after the, the, the amateur talent did their thing. But, but there's one thing that I'm missing that was a staple at the showtime of the Apollo. Whenever the person came from back to perform, the amateur person, there was one thing that they had to do before they got introduced. They had to rub this tree stump. This tree stump was a pillar of the showtime at the Apollo. You, 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 before you talk to the host and tell them what your name was, where you're from, and what you came to do, you had to rub this tree stump. This tree stump was a staple of showtime at the Apollo because if you rubbed the tree stump, it gave you good luck, allegedly. The problem is I saw many people rub that stump, rub it real good, rub their hands together, get on the stage, open their mouth, and it sounds like absolutely the worst singing, the worst comedy, the worst rapping that you ever heard in your life. And it revealed that although the stump was a staple, it had no efficacy to help you to do anything. Because at the end of the day, all that stump was was just a man-made idol had no efficacy whatsoever. It brought you no good luck. You know who I saw rub the stump one time in the 90s? A young lady came out and rubbed that stump real good. And she got on that stage and got, blue, got booed to smithereens. Her name was Lauren Hill. Somebody was lying. Either that crowd was lying or that rock was lying. Both of them were wrong. Because there is no efficacy in an object. And this is what he's saying to them. Because essentially 
when you ascribe worship to something that has been made, subconsciously, you are trying to control outcomes. So idol worship in effort, in, in, inevitably becomes a form of manipulation and control. The idol starts becoming something that you put into your service, although you say it represents God. And so what you're saying is, and what the pagans said in Egypt was that the idols gave them a kind of spiritual contact that would enable them not just to communicate with God, but to control God. If we do this, God will do that. As long as I have this thing with me, oh, I got to go back in. I forgot my lucky doll. I got to take it with me. I got to wear my lucky jacket. I got to grab my lucky hat. I got to get my lucky, uh, my lucky pin and put it on my jacket. As long as I have that, everything should be all right. As long as I do this thing the right way, and I say it represents God, God will give me what I want. We cannot look to any man-made thing as if it established communication with God or that it brings us any closer to God. Here's what's so crazy about Israel in this particular text is that God gave them the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. And if you were to flip over just a little bit, by the time we get to Exodus chapter 32 and Moses is up on the mountain talking to God too long, guess what the people have forgotten? They've forgotten both of the first two commandments. Why do you say that? Because if you turn to Exodus 32, you know what they're doing? They've made a golden calf. How is it? He just told you this. He literally just told you this not too long ago. Not too long. He just, he, he spoke to them directly for the first time when he gave the Ten Commandments. Typically, God spoke directly to Moses, but he called, has them come close to the mountain before he gives the Ten Commandments. And he speaks so that they, for the first time, can hear his voice. So this wasn't even secondhand commandments that they got. They heard it directly from God's mouth. And right shortly thereafter, here they are, worshiping an idol. They had heard from God, but because they hadn't heard nothing new, they decided they had to do something. They could have trusted what he had already said. He gave them ten words to live by already. But they needed something extra. Aren't we like that? God says something in his word. I know what he said in the Bible, but. I know what he said in his word, but. And we wait for a feeling. We wait for the warm and fuzzies. We wait for another person to come and say some word of the Lord to us in order for us to do what God has already spoken in his word. And because we feel like God isn't saying anything, we get impatient and we construct our own idols. Here's what it says in Exodus 32, verses 4 through 6. Aaron says, my bro is up there. Y'all want to worship I can't just wait on bro. I actually got to do something. I got I to gotta do what you, y'all want. You, I'm, gonna, I'm a man. Aaron says, I'm a man of the people. Whatever the people want, I give them. So he took the gold from them. Give me your gold necklaces. Give me your gold ropes. Give me that Cuban link. <laughs> give me that Jesus piece. 
Give me that cross. Give me that platinum. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made those objects into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Let me pause right there. That is the most disrespectful thing in all of Scripture, in my opinion. Here's why. He taught, you were there for 400 years, couldn't get out of your own way. I brought you out miraculously. You saw what I did with the plagues on Egypt. You saw how I brought you through the Red Sea. And before I gave you these rules of the regulation and of the, of the rules of the relationship, I said to you first, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the first thing you say when I don't speak to you for 30 days is that I want that old thing back. These are the gods that brought us out of the land of Egypt. And they're fantasizing Egypt. Don't look at them in that tone of voice. Because we do the same thing. It was better back then. And before I was a Christian, I didn't have any problems. It was just smooth sailing. I had so much freedom. Life was so much more fun. I could do whatever I wanted to do. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made announcement. What do you do at an altar? You bow to it and you worship to it. What did he just tell them to do in the second commandment? Don't bow to the thing and don't, wor- don't worship it and don't serve it. They're doing the very thing he said not to do. Then he said, there will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow, tomorrow, early next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. They did exactly what God told them not to do when they didn't hear from God. They did what they wanted to do and then pretended that God blessed it. I just said something so crazy. They did what God told them not to do did their own thing, and then pretended that God's hand was on it. And they proclaimed a feast. And they reverted back. And here's the thing. If you were to ask them, they were worshiping the one true and living God. Because idolatry always starts out with good intentions. But they were violating the second commandment. And you know what this points out for us? That we have an innate desire to worship. We will make something to worship. When we feel like God is not with us, we will worship something. Everybody worships something. Every atheist worships something, even if it's their own intellect. Because God has created everybody innately (laughs) to be a worshiper. Yes, you are a worshiper. Whenever we are disobeying God, we might not be worshiping him, but we are worshiping something. John Calvin said it like this. We are a perpetual factory of idols. When we can't find one, we'll make one. This is the same thing that the Apostle Paul discovered when he went to Athens. We look at Acts chapter 17, verses 23 through 30. Paul is at the Areopagus, and he's where all the Greek philosophers would go to give their best TED Talks. 
and wax poetic, and he notices something that there are idols everywhere in Athens. And here's what he says, for I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, and I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has the point determined their appointed times and the brownies of where they live. He did this so that they might see God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of our own poets have said for our also his uh, offspring since then we are God's offsprings shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold silver or stone an image fashioned by human art and imagination We can't possibly think that God is something that we can make. So here's what he says. Therefore, having overlooked the times of your ignorance, God commands all people everywhere to knock it off. Repent. Paul saw these idols of all types of shapes and sizes everywhere. You know what the people were trying to do by making all these idols? They were just trying to cover their bases. Got an idol for everything. I got a relationship idol. I got a money idol. I got an education idol. I got a career idol. I got a friend idol. I got all kinds of idols, and I want to just make sure that my bases are covered. And what they were really just trying to do was manipulate God. And here's Paul's point. We don't make God. God made us. We don't give life to God because if you make an idol, you essentially, you are giving life to it. But how do we give life to God when God already gave life to us? By breaking the second command, we reveal that we already broke the first. Here's how Jen Wilkins said it in the book, Ten Words to Live by Shameless Plug, Not So Shameless for Life Groups. Here's what she says. By exercising the desire to worship God in a way contrary to his command, we set ourselves in his place, thus making ourselves God. This is what we do. Or the way Paul put it when he wrote his letter to Rome in Romans chapter 125, here's what Paul says. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve what has been created instead of the creator. Here's the thing. The absurdity of making God out of something that can be made is that we unintentionally diminish the greatness of God. If God is omnipresent, meaning that God is everywhere, how can we give God a shape or form that confines him to a limited space? How, 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 how do you put Shaq in a dunking booth? I'll tell you how. You can't. Why? Because he's too big. But to put somebody who can't fit into something is to ascribe to them a smallness. 
And what we're saying is, God, you're not big. You're actually small. We've made you. You are the exact opposite of who you say that you are. And what we're doing is inevitably bringing God down to our level. And here's what we do. Whenever we imagine God to be a certain way that he doesn't say that he is, God tends to think like us, act like us, feel like us, and respond like us. You ever notice when something makes you mad, we justify how God will feel about the situation too? God all of a sudden gets fashioned into our image and into our likeness. But when we diminish the greatness of God, we unintentionally also diminish ourselves. We, we don't need to create images of God. This is going to blow your mind. Why? Because God already created images of himself. Genesis 1:27 says this, not on the screen, but here's what he says. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So why would we make something that imagines God when God has already made something in his image? Anything else that we make is a knockoff. We don't make images of God, people, because we already bear his image. We are God's chosen masterpieces, made in his image and likeness. Not so that people can worship us, but that we can show people what God is actually like. Not physically, but spiritually. We've been made in his image so that we can reflect his glory, so that we can show people what God is like. This is the point of him giving us the Ten Commandments so that we can live in a way that coincides with the character of God. Remember this, Exodus 19, 4 through 6. Remember this. Here's what he said to them before he gave them the Ten Commandments. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be my, king, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. God has rescued them and brought them into freedom. The same way Christ has rescued us and brought us into freedom. But God brings them into freedom and calls them out, separates them, not by distance, but he separates them from the world by the way that they live. And the reason that they are to do this is so that they could show the world what God is like, therefore people would desire to worship God. And so we, we don't need to make images We just need to show them what God looks like. We we are the images that God has made. And so this is an exhortation for us to not make an image, but become more of his image, to be more like him. We're not allowed to make God's image, but only to be God's image. So you're asking, how how do we do this? How how, how are we to be God's image? How how are we to do this? I'm going to give you two ways, and then we'll be out of here. Two ways. And and this would fall under the category of worship God the way that he demands. How do we find that out? 
through his word. Everything we need to know about how we worship God is found in his word. He, he's instructed us on how to worship through his word. This is, this is what happened with Israel. This is what went wrong. They let their imaginations lead their thoughts about God as opposed to God's own words. God spoke to them, told them how to worship, told them what to do. See, we think worship is some, some thing that we do, some, some style, or, or, or we lift our hands. That's how you worship. No, I clap my hands. That's how I worship. No, those are expressions of worship. But worship is really our obedience. He gave them ten ways to worship. And if they would have just listened to this instead of their imaginations, they would have had the life that they actually desired. They received the commands by his word. You notice what God didn't show them when he gave them the Ten Commandments? Himself. He allowed them to hear his voice. Hear his words. This is how God chose to reveal himself through his word. This point is pivotal to understand the second command. Let, let me just ring a bell for you. Second Corinthians 5 and 7 says what? For we walk by faith and not by sight. Oh, if I could just. We had a worship service. We were in church and we saw Jesus. And I always imagine a wonder, I should say, how do you say you saw Jesus in the worship service? How did you see him? How did you see How did that happen? We, we, saw, we saw God in the worship service. How? When God says that we walk by faith and not by sight. And here's what I'm trying to say to you. God doesn't want us to look. He wants us to listen. Our imagination about God must be captive to the word of God. I say this all the time, man, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to beat it like a dead horse. Do not undermine the significance that the word of God plays in your life as a Christian. You cannot have a fruitful relationship with God apart from God's word. God has chosen the means through which he will speak to us, and it's through his words. Not through your funny feeling, not, 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 not to diminish your dreams, but, but not even through your dreams. Everything is under the subjection of the word of God. Here's what Martin Luther said about it. He said, without his word, all is idolatry and lies. However devout it may seem and however beautiful it may appear, we need his word. How can we obey or benefit from God if we vaguely understand what he said in his word? How can we worship rightly and receive any of God's benefits if we remain ignorant about how he said we should worship him? How can we be fruitful in our relationship with him? Romans 10 and 17 said this, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ, which brings me to my second and final point. We must trust in Christ. If you want to know what God looks like, you must look at Jesus. Here's what Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 tells us about Christ. 
He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. The word image there comes from a word icon, E-I-K-O-N, where we get our English word icon from. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The book of Hebrews even says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If you want to know what God is like, just look at the life of Jesus. I'm not talking about his physical description. The truth of the matter is the Bible really doesn't tell us what the physical description of Jesus was like. Doesn't really tell us. Doesn't give us enough accurate, doesn't give us enough details that, that we can sketch out what he looks like. I know what you're asking, so should I get, get rid of that picture in my grandma's house that's right next to Jesus, JFK, and Martin Luther the King Jr.? Leave your grandma's photographs alone. There's nothing wrong with the picture, except for it's inaccurate, but there's nothing wrong with the picture as long as you don't ascribe worship to it or feel like this house is protected because look at his staring eyes. <laughs> look at his gaze. Jesus, in a way only he could, only, in a way only he could do, fulfills the second command. He showed the Father to his disciples. When one of the disciples came to him, Jesus said this in John 14 and 9. Jesus said to him, have I, among you all this, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen Christ, you know what God is like. And for us to look at Jesus and look at his life is to see what Israel could not see at Mount Sinai. Jesus did the absolute impossible. He allowed humanity to see God, the God that had never been seen. This is good news for us because God has made a way for sinful humanity to gaze upon and touch the flesh of the holy and sinless God. We can touch God. We can communicate God through his mediator, his son, Jesus. How can we worship God the right way? By worshiping Jesus. And rather than remaking God into our own image, we allow Jesus to make us more like him. Here are the consequences, and I'm done. What happens if we don't worship right, the right way? In this famous section of the text, he lays out some consequences. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. This has scared many a people. And we've often ascribed generational curses to ourselves and others because of this text. But let me first free God from the accusation that he's some sort of crazy, insane boyfriend or lover. When it says that God is jealous, it doesn't mean that God is insecure or that God is possessive or that you can't go to the bathroom without somebody calling you 25 times. It's not what it's saying. His jealousy is his zeal for us, his passion for us, his love for us. It, it's his zeal to protect what rightfully belongs to him. His, his jealousy for us is the same way a mother is to protect her newborn baby or father is to protect his home. And what God is jealous of and protecting in the second commandment is his love and his honor for us. And what he's saying is he doesn't want to share his glory with anybody else. 
But when we do, he says that I'm bringing, that I'm bringing the consequence of the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generation. Let me set you free. If you notice that text, it says, bringing the consequences to the children because of the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generation. And here's where we stop and we should keep going. To those who hate me. He is not saying that if your father does not have a relationship with the Lord or your grandfather didn't have a relationship with the Lord or your great-grandfather didn't have a relationship with the Lord, that that means that there is a generational curse on you. It says to those who hate me, that means this, that if your great-grandfather hated the Lord and your grandfather hated the Lord and your father hated the Lord and you continue on with their hatred of the Lord, then the same consequences that fell on them will fall on you. But notice what he says but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. That means that if you love him and you receive his love through his son Jesus, that his faithful love is on you, not a curse. So can we please stop ascribing generational curses to ourselves? Well, just because my father did this, my grandmother did this, then inevitably I'm going to do this. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. That means at the moment, at the moment you trusted in Jesus, whatever curse there may have been or could have been was broken right there at that moment. And now you are in Christ and you walk in complete freedom, not the freedom to disobey God like they did, but the freedom to serve Him. If we do the math, what's longer, to the third and fourth generation or to a thousand generations? And what is giving us is a picture of God's faithful love. We like to say, oh, God in the Old Testament was so mean and brutal. But what we see him saying about himself is that he shows faithful love, meaning that he will never stop loving you, to a thousand generations. Does that mean at a thousand one he stops? No, when he says a thousand, he just means that I know after about 200, you're going to stop counting. <laughs> Which means I'll live in eternity to those who love me. And how do we love him? By worshiping him the right way. You know what Jesus says when he's talking to the Samaritan woman? And they're talking about worship and she's trying to ascribe worship to a particular place. Jesus says to her in John 4, he says, he says that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In verse 24, he says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. How does that happen? Through relationship with Lord Jesus. So if you want to worship God rightly, yes, yes, we have the right God, but we, we must worship him the right way. If you want to worship God the right way, then we don't determine how he can be worshipped because nobody wants to be loved the way the other person says that they decided to love you even though you told them differently. None of us would accept that. 
None of us would stay in a relationship with anybody that we say, hey, love me this way, and they love you a way that you keep telling them not to love you. I hate roses. Don't bring me roses. Don't bring me roses. But for 12 weeks, they keep showing up with roses. And it does not matter how well-intended they think that they are. You don't receive it because it's not the way that you desire to be loved. And God is saying the same thing. Don't love me the way you've decided to love me. Love me the way I've commanded you to love me. And when you do this, we will have a beautiful and fruitful relationship. And because I know you're fallen and you're sinful and you're subject to offend me, my son has done it the right way and perfectly. And because he is righteous and you trust in him, you get his righteousness. And he has fulfilled the law completely. So if you want to know how to worship, look at my son. This is how we do it. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.